Brothers and sisters, I am very thankful to be with you, uh, and you have given me and my family a warm welcome. Uh, I am concerned for Carlos' suffering, and I'm praying along with you all for a speedy recovery for him and for grace for him to endure. I do bring greetings to you from your sister congregation in Norfolk. Uh, please pray for us. The congregation turns 40 years old next summer, and our founding pastor plans to retire at that time. So we are starting a pulpit search committee, and it's the first time we've ever experienced anything like that. Now, our sermon this morning comes from Luke 4. So uh, if you've got a copy of the scriptures, I'm going to be reading from Luke 4, starting at verse 14. Luke 4, 14 through 30. As you turn it up, you may be amused to interpret God's providence, which is always tricky. Uh, when Carlos uh, offered me the opportunity to try to help out, I sent him a sermon text. I looked at your website and uh, I wanted to get a feel for uh, where I should be and, and uh, how I should dress. And uh, I, then I realized last week uh, he preached on the exact same passage that I initially proposed. So I thought, <laughs> does the Lord want you all to hear the same text again? And we decided no, no. So. Uh, Luke 4, starting at verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard these things in the synagogue, all were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill 
on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Now, as we go into our message, let me set for you the context of our passage. God has been silent for four centuries. But in the first two chapters of Luke, angels appear. And they tell people that a baby, Jesus, has come. And this baby, Jesus, is surrounded by indicators that he is going to be a king. He is going to be the Messiah. And then, as Luke unfolds, the history jumps forward uh, into his adult years, and now he's about 30 years old. And it almost seems like he's done nothing of note with his life. The only thing that people seem to recall is that he is a carpenter, the son of a carpenter. So in Luke 3, Jesus is baptized, and at that moment of his baptism, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus. A voice from heaven speaks to all men present about Jesus. It's one of three times that that will happen. And this voice announced that Jesus is the loved son of God who pleases God. And then we're whisked away from that baptism, that voice from heaven. Jesus immediately leaves by himself and he enters into a battle, a 40-day battle. Now, most wars have a few key battles. This is one of those key battles in the long war against the devil. In Luke 4, Jesus is tempted for 40 days by Satan, and in this battle, he defeats the devil. And this battle is a replay of Adam in the garden, but this time, the representative of all humanity succeeds. Jesus returns from this victory and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so now he is set to begin his public ministry. And this is where our passage begins today. Now I'm going to begin by giving you a brief overview of the passage. And then I want to talk about it under three main headings. The man, the message, and the mutiny. The man, the message, and the mutiny. So let's go into an overview of the passage. Luke chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, uh, they describe what we can call Jesus' Galilean ministry. Uh, before this, or maybe concurrent to it, Jesus spends time in the south, south of Galilee, in Judea. But here, he's going to spend a great deal of time in Galilee, this, this whole area around the region of his hometown. And what happens there? He makes quite a splash. There's ongoing buzz about how his speeches and his charitable work uh, make an impact. Uh, people are talking about it. Verse 16 uh, narrows our focus to one town, Nazareth in Galilee, the actual town where Jesus grew up. Jesus has come to visit his hometown, the place where he would have gone to high school, the place where he would have had a small business. The setting is the synagogue, and you can think of that as the little town church building. The people there know Jesus' parents and his siblings. His sisters still live in this little town. So everyone comes out to hear the local guy 
who has made it big. Now, it's curious that the writer of the book of Luke chooses Nazareth as the first scene to present. It's not the first account of what Jesus has done chronologically up to this point, but Luke selects it. And it's a template event that makes a fundamental statement about who Jesus is and how people are going to respond to him. Jesus attends the synagogue service in town, and it's his habit in every town that he visits. Verse 16 tells us that Jesus made it to church no matter where he went. And during the synagogue service, probably because of his growing reputation, Jesus is selected to be the reader and the preacher for the morning meeting. Now, verse 17, it tells us that Jesus read from the book of Isaiah. He likely selected the particular passage uh, that was read. He reads from the beginning of Isaiah 61, and that's quoted in the next two verses. Verses 18, verses 19 are a quote, but not, a, not an exact quote from Isaiah 61. There are several interesting things to note. First, uh, this is what Jesus himself chooses to preach about. It's a quote focused on a man who is anointed and sent by God to preach and to release people. A quote about a man who is sent by God to preach and to release people. Secondly, it's interesting to note, Jesus leaves some things out of this reading from Isaiah, and he inserts some things into this quote. Isaiah 61 uh, introduces this anointed one, it says three things about his mission. He brings a message, he brings healing, and he brings liberation. Now, this isn't unusual for Jesus to make a selective reading. Um, that, that was common for the reader and the preacher at the synagogue to skip text in order to convey whatever his emphasis was going to be in the message. But it's note, note, worth noting the changes here. Uh, this phrase, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, it's not in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. It looks like it might be an alteration of something a few chapters earlier in Isaiah, maybe Isaiah 58, verse 6. Uh, just note that, that change that Jesus makes. Um, having read this selection from Isaiah, Jesus sits down, and that was common in those days. The teacher taught from the seated position. And what this means is, they're ready for the sermon to begin. Jesus is about to begin preaching. So how did the sermon go? Verses 21, verses 22. Time is compressed here a little bit, but we get the sense that Jesus is now preaching. He's expounding the message from Isaiah. And as he goes into the sermon, how are the people responding? What's their reaction? What kind of preacher is he? We're told that Jesus' sermon is amazing. The people are talking, even as the sermon is going. They're saying the delivery, the content, Jesus is an amazing preacher, and the people are very impressed with what they're hearing. If you look at the parallel account in Matthew 13, we're told the people are not just amazed, they're surprised. They're surprised at the goodness, the wisdom in Jesus' words. He's leaving in their minds an unforgettable impression on everyone there. But, but in verse 23, the sermon is starting to go off the rails. There's a shift in how they're responding. Here and in other places in Luke, we, we know that on the side of Jesus, Jesus is tracking with the hearers. He knows what's going on in the hearts and in the minds of his listeners. 
And as he speaks, he knows what's going on in their hearts. And Jesus is detecting, as he's preaching, two problems in the hearers of the sermons. First of all, he's detecting that they admire his speaking ability, but they resent how Jesus seems to have risen above them. It's the prejudice of familiarity. It's jealousy of how he has risen above them in prominence. It's pride. He's detecting that. Secondly, and this is the bigger of the two problems, they're, they're, they're impressed with his speaking ability, but they don't believe the content. They don't believe what he's saying. And when you don't believe what Jesus is saying, the Bible calls this unbelief. So the parallel account in Mark 13 explicitly identifies their unbelief. Now, in this passage, verses 23 through 27, Jesus, like mid, midstream in the middle of the sermon, sees the unbelief and detects it is time to rebuke it. So he rebukes their unbelief. How does he do it? Verse 23, he reads their thoughts. He says, here's what you're thinking. You're thinking, and you would say to me, physician, heal yourself. They're like skeptics who come and hear the word being preached here, week in, week out, or in, in some of your outreach ministries. And they hear the word being delivered. They're like skeptics or agnostics who hear, and they say something like this. I might believe what you're telling me. I might believe it if you could match it with a miracle. Maybe if you would do something supernatural, maybe then that would be convincing to me. So verses 25, 27, Jesus tells them, I'm not going to do a miracle for you. You want a miracle, you're not going to get it. He compares their attitude to that of their ancestors. And this is very offensive. He compares their attitude to Israel when the greatest prophets prior to him had come, Elijah and Elisha. And they left Israel, left the people in the church, and went to bring God's miracles and his blessings to Gentiles and to enemy nations. God plans to send his blessing to the Gentiles to the people who are outsiders, to the people who will not come to synagogue. And Luke highlights this in his writings here and in the rest of the book. But delivering that message in church is offensive. That's like telling your wife, Thanksgiving is coming up. I'm making plans for Thanksgiving. I'm not going to be here with you. I'm going to go and spend Thanksgiving with my ex-girlfriend's family. It's... It's very hurtful. Now, that explains what seems like, when you're reading this, uh, almost uh, just a weird shift. There's a murderous response in verse 28. The congregation ends the sermon. They push Jesus, the preacher, out to the edge of a cliff. They want to kill him. Those cliffs of Nazareth are still there. You can visit them today. They want to throw Jesus off and kill him. So in verse 30, Jesus just walks through this mob and he leaves them, and he's unharmed. It's quiet. It's as if they have been subdued, and without even a word from Jesus. How did that happen? Well, Jesus is divine. We know that he has power over storms. He has power over men. They weren't able to harm him unless he voluntarily allowed them to harm him. 
For those of you who worry about the state of Christianity, how it's being attacked in universities, how it's being attacked by hostile laws, how the culture seems against the fundamentals of the Christian message, get some perspective. Get some perspective. Nobody can harm Jesus unless he voluntarily offers himself up. Now, having briefly surveyed the passage, I want to talk about three things. The man, the message, and the mutiny. First, let's talk about the man, Jesus. There are two things I want to note in this passage about the man, Jesus. First of all, Jesus is sent from God. Secondly, Jesus is the Christ. He's sent from God, and he's the Christ. Let's look at these. What do we mean when we say that Jesus is sent from God? Well, verse 18 says this, The Lord has sent me. Jesus has been sent. When you read the Gospels, you you very quickly get the sense that you are not reading a typical historical account. Jesus has come from somewhere else. Yes, they all know where he was born and that he was a baby. This is his hometown. But somehow, at the same time, Jesus is also sent from God. And if you're like most of us who live in Tidewater, and you you run into people that are homeless, and when you have the opportunity and you hear their story, 50% of the people who have a psychotic break from reality, 50% of them claim divinity. I don't know why that is, but you all know when you hear those words that I am Jesus or I am God or I have sent from God, you immediately realize, okay, that's, that's, that's a detachment from reality. That is the force of what we're hearing about Jesus. He is sent from God. This is a theme throughout Scripture. God, who is not from this universe, from what we see and what we touch and all that we've known by our senses. God is constantly taking the initiative to communicate to us, to come to us, to make a connection with us, to make and build an ongoing relationship with us. You see this in Eden, in the garden. You see this with Noah. You see it with Moses, with Abraham, with Jacob, with the prophets. Now he's doing it with Jesus. In this time of history, God has purchased the tickets for his son. He's packed the bags. He's flown in and taken off the time to spend time with us here in a new and in a closer way through Jesus. God in Jesus is moving towards us. And we can thank God that he comes towards us. How could we ever, how could we ever make our way and connect to God unless he was the one who came towards us. So first of all, Jesus is sent from God to us. But secondly, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Verse 18, this quote from Isaiah 61, Jesus is called the Christ or the anointed one. The term anointed one is a very special concept in scripture. It's a, it's a very loaded term. It carries centuries of meaning and hope. And, you know, all these, these movie plots, fantasy stories where they focus on one person as the chosen one. Those are all very weak imitations of the Messiah theme in the Bible. The Jewish people lived with a future yearning, a hope 
the believer's heart would have felt longing for this anointed one to come. It's, uh, the, it's, it's the word that's um, in Hebrew uh, that we use now in English, Messiah. It's translated in the New Testament for Greek speakers as Christ, anointed one, Messiah, Christ, all the same term, the same concept. The man who is selected by God to turn everything around for God's people, their political problems, their moral problems, their extensive religious problems. Messiah, the Christ will come. Everything will change when he finally comes. That's where we are today, brothers and sisters. We have big problems. Big problems. The earth now, our nation, is filled with violence. Our communities are filled with tension, disagreement, raised voices and emotions. We are badly divided. We're badly divided in our country, in our homes, and in our churches. Protectors take advantage of us. It was true in the past, it's true now. Our big problems, our personal problems, can only be handled and will only be resolved by Messiah. You need Messiah. You need the Christ. I need this Christ. So we've looked at the man, Jesus who is sent from God, Jesus who is the Christ. Now let's look at the message that he brings. Why did God send Christ, the Messiah? He sent him with a message. What's God telling us in Christ? We could spend a long time diving deep, lingering over verse 18, verse 19. But in our time today, briefly, I want to bring out three things about his message. It's a message to sufferers. A message to sufferers. Secondly, it's a message of release. And thirdly, it is a message about Messiah. A message to sufferers, a message of release, and a message about Messiah. Let's look at these. First of all, the message to sufferers, verses 18 and 19. To whom is the anointed one sent? Just look at that list. It's just a bunch of different people groups. It's to the poor. It's to the brokenhearted. It's to the captive. It's to the blind. And it's to the oppressed. Who are the poor? Who are the poor that the Messiah is sent to? The poor are those who have less than others. Those who don't have what it takes to make life work. You could be poor financially, your bank account, but you can also be poor in your moral bank account. Are you morally poor? Do your fractured personal relationships outnumber your healthy personal relationships? Do you feel like you just don't quite measure up to the people around you? to the people in this room? Do you feel like you keep trying harder to be good, to be nice, to be pure, but inwardly, you usually just feel lousy. You usually just feel like, I'm not changing, and maybe I'm never going to change. You are poor. How about the brokenhearted? Maybe someone you love is very sick, and maybe they will not likely recover. Maybe someone that you love has died. 
Maybe someone that you love has left you and they probably won't come back. Your hopes for the future are crushed and you go around continually with pain right here. No one can see it, but you're always feeling it. Emotional pain, soul pain. That's brokenheartedness. Okay, who is the captive? Well, we can certainly think of those who are taken into slavery, victims of human trafficking. Older translations have a nice way of putting it. They call it man-stealing. It's in the history of the church. Remember Joseph being sold by his own brothers, sons of Israel. Recall in the past centuries, even in this country, Christians in America who bought slaves. But we all suffer a deeper captivity. We all have sins, besetting sins, the ones that keep repeating over and over, whether it's our spending or our sexting, whether it's porn binging or pursuing the praise of people. These things we play in our lives. We get entangled in them, and there are besetting sins. Places like John 8, 34 tell us, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Those things that get a grip on us and they get in the driver's seat and they rule us. We can't get out. We are captives of these besetting sins. It's kind of like that experiment where the monkey keeps putting the button to get nicotine, but eventually the nicotine stops giving the, the kick. The nicotine doesn't deliver, but they keep pushing the button. We're captives. Okay, who are the blind? Certainly one aspect of this speaks of medical problems. Something broken in the body, something broken in the mind. The sleep disorder that makes life when you're awake just feel like a haze. Or some kind of hormone dysregulation that makes being with friends who are laughing just feel flat, makes it all feel fake. Could be the severe condition that your son or your daughter has which has no known cure. All of that's included in the blind. But there's another blindness that's also in view here. There's a blindness that makes it impossible for us to see God. It's a blindness that sees the life that's offered in Jesus Christ and says, no thanks. I'd rather just sit here by myself in the darkness alone. Then there are the oppressed, those who are suffering evil, who are done, uh, evil that is done by others against them. In relationships, we can call it today abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse. One person is harming the other. One person is oppressing the other. At work, it could be uh, abusive behavior by a manager who is maltreating the rest of the team. In society, it's the strong and the rich who misuse their position of power and advantage and instead take opportunities from those who are needy. It could be prejudice against minorities. But, but I think with all of that in the mix, there's an even greater oppressor in view, and that is the devil. The devil is the greater oppressor in all that and above all of that. Throughout the Gospels, we see the devil oppressing people. Sometimes, he does it with physical torment. Think of the book of Job. Sometimes it's with spiritual torment. 
If you look at Luke 11, verses 11 through 16, Luke speaks of a woman with a physical problem. She's bent over. She cannot straighten up. And she's living life stooped for 18 years. 18 years with a spinal problem. And why? It says the devil had bound her. Yes, there was something medical going on. Ultimately, the devil had bound her. The monkeys keep pushing the button to get the nicotine. But the devil is a scientist who set up the experiment. The poor, the brokenhearted, the captive, the blind, the oppressed, all of that, that whole spectrum, it's overwhelming. So this is a message that Jesus brings to those who are suffering from sin and suffering from the sin of others. You've been wrong, but you've also been wronged. You've been harmed. So this is a message to sinners and to sufferers. But this is also a message of release. It's called, over and over, gospel. It's called good news that Jesus has come. And, and there's a promise embedded in this that Jesus is going to turn all of that around. The most self-destructive thing about yourself, Jesus can and will transform you won't be ruled by your sin. It's also cosmic and universal. He's going to reverse the curse. All of the corrupted structures in your life and the world system are going to be renewed one day. Now, how is that going to happen? How will this man, the son of a carpenter, who has done nothing notable with his life, for the past 30 years, how will this Jesus from this small town turn everything around? Well, that's the message. That's the message that he brings. He says, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Well, we've looked at the man. We've looked at the message. Now let's look at the mutiny. Verses 23 through 29, we see the response. The congregation rises up to kill the servant of the Lord. That's mutiny. I'm going to talk about two aspects of this mutiny. Denial and departure. Denial and departure. Let's start with the denial. The Son of God has been sent to us with a message. Wherever he goes, Jesus brings the message and he asks for a response. He's asking for allegiance. He's asking for buy-in. But the people here, his people, will not have him. Now, that's not really surprising, is it? First of all, the claim he's making is massive. I doubt any of you have even for a, a minute talked to someone having a break from reality because of mental challenges who claimed to be God and thought, this really could be God. You, you know that's too big of an ask. So it's not surprising when people do it with a message from God. It's the, it's the entire message that we see played out in Scripture. Eve rejected Adam's message from God. The entire world rejected Noah's message from God. Joseph, who was the deliverer for Israel, was rejected by all ten of his brothers. Moses, the one sent to deliver Israel, rejected by his people. David, the anointed one, rejected by all of the tribes, but one when he first took the throne. And so when Jesus, the anointed one, comes, we're just not 
surprised that his people reject him and even want to kill him. So let me ask you some hard questions. I don't know you personally. I would love to get to know you. I don't know if you've been here for a long time or you're visiting. I don't know if you have grown up in this church and you're just at the point where you're wondering, what do I actually think about what they teach here? Have you rejected Jesus Christ either by just cool indifference or maybe just direct refusal where you said, this is not the man on whom I am going to hang my hopes. Maybe you grew up here, but now that you're getting older, you don't want to be loyal to Jesus because in his message, you just see too many problem areas, too many questions that don't have answers that you like. Or maybe it's not the message of Jesus, it's the people of Jesus. They just, they're, they're really just too warty. I know these people, and I know their problems. And if that's what being a follower of Jesus is like, I'm out. You may be saying to yourself, you know, maybe if Jesus would do a miracle right in front of me, maybe I would believe. But you and I know your unbelief has nothing to do with signs and miracles. It's not that you haven't seen something supernatural. It's that you don't want him. And that's why you reject him. If that's you, you're just another person sitting in the majority of the persons who have rejected the anointed one sent from God. And that is mutiny. How does Jesus respond to the mutiny? I'll talk about the second aspect, the departure. Jesus tells them plainly where they stand in history. They are what Jesus would call, what we would call, deniers. They get the call from Jesus, and they send it right to voicemail. They're not going to answer. And so what does Jesus do? He leaves. He departs from them. He won't do any signs for them. And it's not out of spite but Jesus never wastes his miracles. Miracles are given not so much to convince skeptics. Miracles are given to confirm someone's existing small faith. But they don't believe, so Jesus, having delivered the message, leaves them. He leaves them. He's not going to waste a sign on people who won't believe. Jesus entered this world as a man, a son of man, and as the Son of God. He was abused by the political and religious authorities. He endured suffering. He let them put himself to death. He was wronged. He was badly wronged in that. He was the sufferer. He was the prisoner. And he was unjustly killed by the crowd, finally, on the cross. And there he died, and then he rose again, so that you could be set free from your sinful and abusing ways and actually change. Now, I don't know what you think about Jesus today. I don't know where you are with him. But can I ask you this? Are you poor? Are you stuck? Are you blind? And do you want Jesus?
Jesus is here today. Something happens when we read his words. He promises that he is here today. But we are going to leave this little synagogue this morning. And Jesus may also leave this little synagogue today. And you may never hear him again until that final day of vengeance of the Lord. And so I ask you this. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Amen.